are listening to Power Producers Shop Talk, where we are refining and redefining the sales game by equipping you with the tools you need to differentiate yourself in the marketplace. Well, it's like when we audit the mod with Magic and give them the action items that they're going to use to lower their total cost of risk. Tactical skills that will help you provide deliverable value to your clients and prospects. Technology is not an expense, it's an investment. Look at what ThinkHR has done for our clients and even our team. It's an amazing product and I'm so thankful we have that. And action items that you can provide to take your prospects and clients to the next level. Things are changing for us in 2021. Not all big business anymore. Now that we have Cover Wallet on our team, it's amazing that we're going to be able to write small business profitably. This is Power Producer Shop Talk production redefined are you ready to feel the power hey everybody welcome to power producer podcast shop talk on friday where we are refining and redefining the sales game and if you're watching us on video you're going to realize well actually i could probably if i'm a good enough salesperson i could probably sell that mr todd tams is actually kyle after he shaved (laughs) <laughs> I could try that because we're all sitting down, but I'm not going to try that. Kyle is out. He's got the COVID, not feeling so hot. And so we had to bring in a backup and we brought in a good one. So we got Mr. Todd Tams filling in Kyle's seat as we wrap up our last three episodes of Shop Talk with Mr. Kevin Ring from the Institute of Workers' Compensation Professionals based out of Asheville, North Carolina. So, guys. We got three bangers. I mean, I as soon as I realized Kyle wasn't going to be here, I knew the guy, right? I knew the guy I was going to ask because this is just absolute perfection as far as I'm concerned for workers' comp conversation. So I'm glad to have Todd here. And, I mean, we're going to get kicked off and start with classifications. Um, I think it's interesting because as I sit and I look at all of the internet back channels that I'm on. Like, yeah, I'm that guy. I'm in workers' compensation groups on the internet. Sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm a recovering, uh, recover. I have a, re- a problem I'm recovering from, but, um, it's always interesting to me how many people have an opinion on classifications. And I've never really, I, I've never really felt like that was something that you needed to have an opinion on it's kind of black and white in most cases right i mean you can you can read the scopes manual and maybe have some interpretation of what you want it to mean but that would also be like my parents saying david i don't want you eating ice cream after eight o'clock and then me interpreting that to mean well if it's not that far after eight it'll be okay right so let's talk about that a little bit man let's let's talk about classifications and why it's so important to have people class right and listen I realize that some of that might seem like common sense but I also have seen a lot of deck pages and mod worksheets that tell me this is a worthwhile topic well, it's it's incredibly easy for a business to be misclassified in most states, with the exception of Pennsylvania and Delaware, there's north of 500 different classifications. And I agree with you 100%, David. I hear uh, agents that are upset all the time about the way a business is classified. Well, you know, this is too expensive for what they actually do. And I'm sympathetic to that, but it doesn't really change the fact 
that the classification system is what it is, and it is designed, with some exceptions, to group businesses that are similar in, in so that they are charged similar rates and so that they can produce rates. Because if we tried to promulgate rates for every single insured, the business would be chaos, right? The, you know, there are these groups that have been created by uh, the rating bureaus. And what far too many agents do is they will they'll walk into a business, they'll explain to a business owner why they're the best agent that that business owner's ever met with. Uh, the other agent is a loser and you should ditch them. And then they will pick up their existing policy and copy down the class codes, just like, you know, it's like cheating off the paper of the, the person, you know, fails every test, you know, if, and those class codes, you know, they have that four or five or six words on the deck sheet, but that doesn't tell you what the code actually says. I, I like to challenge people and ask, you know, if, if we were to take a break right now and I ask you, gave you 15 minutes to write a description of what you feel like a clerical job is, you know, what would you write? And the answer is typically two or three paragraphs. If, if they were that kid in school that thought a 500 word essay needed to be a thousand words, so they'd get an A, they might go a little bit longer than that. But you guys have seen the clerical classification from NCCI. It's like two and a half pages, single space, 10 point font. You know, it's incredibly detailed. If you look at the one in California, it's even more detailed down to like the height of the wall that you need to have to separate someone physically from the risk of the business. If you're not reading the classifications, you're not doing your job. If you don't understand the work that your client is doing, and I mean, you know, what materials they use, what tools they use, what processes they use you're not going to be able to get them classified correctly. And this has always been true, but it's been more true over the last two years is that businesses change, right? What was the right class code two, three, four years ago may not be the correct class code today. You know, they may have added things to what they do. They may have changed their process. They may have, you know, maybe they started offering delivery with their delivery people because of lockdowns, you know, and if you don't know those things, then, then you put them in a very precarious position. They're certainly not paying the, the premium that they should. Their mod isn't going to be what it should be because the expected loss rates that bleed onto the mod from those codes aren't going to be right because it's the wrong code. I mean, it's, it's really the mother of everything else that happens in, in workers comp. Yeah. Look, man. I mean, I think that it's also worth probably talking about too, um, what it means when you say governing class code. Cause I think that's something that comes up a lot that agents don't understand why roofing is the governing class code on a workers compensation policy that includes it. Why? You know, I, I understand, but for the people out there that are just dipping their toe in the water, you know, it's it, it's amazing to me because we, the three of us have been doing this long enough. This stuff is really, you know, and of the three of us, Kevin by far has the lion's share of the knowledge of the trio. But, you know, a lot of this is just common sense and second nature at this point. And I'm always amazed at how, how complicated people make this. 
And it doesn't have to be, you know, if you just are able, if you're willing and able to follow instructions and read and comprehend, then it, it, it's not difficult. And I don't, I don't want to say that in a nasty way, but my goodness, people, I mean, you're out putting together complex insurance programs for, for middle market companies in some cases. And you're flying blind. You're like, you just don't even have any idea at all how this works. And I mean, look, I'll be the first person to admit I've made plenty of mistakes in my career. There are things that I have learned by paying stupid tax. I get that. But some of this is just like, wow, what are they putting in the water these days? Well, I mean, let's start with the, the simple stuff. So we're going to set aside four distinct types of operations. You've got construction, agriculture, uh, staffing, which includes temporary staffing, as well as things like PEOs, uh, and then oil field services risks, which was added by NCCI a few years ago and really works exactly the same as construction. So outside of those four types of, of businesses, we classify the business, not the individual types of work that are being done inside the business. So if you have a manufacturing company that employs a full-time janitor, that janitor is going to go in the manufacturing code. That governing code is, is going to be the code that has the greatest amount of payroll outside of the standard exception classifications, which are types of employment that are so common inside of businesses that the rating bureaus have decided to set them aside as exceptions. The exception to that, of course, is if those standard exceptions are included in the governing classification, like something like 8868 in, in NCCI states, which is uh, colleges or churches or schools, professional and clerical. But to not to not go too far off the rails. Um, what a horrendous class code, by the way. The, you know, that code for schools and churches is like a catch-all, man. I, I can't tell you the number of times that I've just seen crazy stuff that the carriers, and listen, the carriers know. They're okay with it. And I just can't believe that in some of those codes, you can have, you know, maintenance people, property management people and all of that, because they're part of the operations of a church or a school, they fall under that. Well, code. Those folks are going to probably fall under 9101, all other employees piece. Uh, but yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, but that's, yeah, you're right. It's not the 8868. It's the 9101. But there's no rate in that code, not compared to the 9014 and 9015. Right. right. And, and that's where. You know, I, I find the same thing with furniture stores. One of the, for whatever reason, one of the more common questions that I get over time is about furniture stores. And what always happens is that the agent is upset because the auditor came in and moved all of their salespeople out of 8742 and put them in the furniture store class code. And they'll say, well, that's not fair. You know, that furniture store class code is for, you know, the people moving furniture. Well, it is. But there's a couple of problems with putting those salespeople at 8742. First of all, 8742 is outside sales, very specifically not inside sales. So if I'm that person wearing a polo and khakis telling you how this Barco lounger is going to change your life inside the furniture store, I am quite obviously not outside sales. The second piece is the furniture store classification is written to contemplate every employee of a furniture store. The people up front selling you furniture as well as the people in the back. And I think without going back and looking at the class code, even the people delivering the furniture to houses. And 
It, no, it does. I've written a pretty large furniture chain, yeah. so it does include everything, right. and including the guys that are in the back building, the knockdown furniture when it comes right. in, right? The, 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 that's coming in in pieces, and they're actually building it before they put right. it out. So, you know, is that furniture store paying a higher rate than is probably reasonable on their salespeople? Almost certainly, yes. On the flip side of that, are they paying a lower rate than they probably should be for the people who are assembling that furniture and delivering it? Also, almost certainly, yes. That's because the class code contemplates the entire business. That experience is collected from all of the furniture stores, and they come up with a rate that represents the risk common to furniture stores encompassing all of those employees. And that's where you get people upset about classifications is to say, well, you know, my furniture store doesn't, you know, doesn't deliver furniture. They don't assemble furniture. Well, is it a furniture store? You know, and, and maybe it's not, you know, maybe it's just a showroom. Maybe that goes into a different code. Um, and there is certainly room for reasonable disagreement inside the classification system. But I tell agents all the time, and I would encourage everyone listening to this, if you want to make a reasonable argument with an underwriter or a premium auditor about a class code, then you better be prepared to make that argument. And that means reading the classification. And that means understanding what your client does, what the classifications contemplate, and how and why a certain classification fits better. Because this is a game of rules. You know, we can argue fairness, but it's an incredibly weak place to argue from. So if you want things to go your way, then you better be prepared to to cite chapter and verse from the uh, the code description and you know from what your client does and and I don't remember if I mentioned this in any of our previous conversations, David, but if you do not have access to the manuals for your state, whether it's the NCCI manuals, if you're in an independent bureau state, whatever it is. If you don't have access, and I'm not talking about going to classcodes.com and finding the two-sentence description that they have on their website, which is not useless, but it's not especially useful. You've got to get in there and read the classifications and understand how this works. Because just waving your hands and yelling and screaming is not going to get it done the majority of the time. You might, you might find an underwriter that feels sorry for you on occasion, but you've got to be able to make those arguments strongly if you want to win them consistently. So Kevin, what you're talking about is being a true professional and paying the fee to run your business and do the, run the business the right way. As an agent, you should not be calling your underwriter saying, Hey, how should I classify this business? You should be paying the fee to NCCI for the scopes manual. So you can go out and classify that business yourself the right way. In addition to that, you better brief your client on those standard exception class codes and how they're going to get burned. If they don't classify and set up the right, the right processes uh, for that business. And I can remember the time um, when I was young and probably much more inexperienced than I am today. And we wrote a manufacturing facility and the audit comes back out and they've taken several of the clerical workers that sit up front and do the bookkeeping and they lumped them into the manufacturing class code in the back. And it turned out over the course of the audit, that these three clerical people up front 
Their job is to clean the back of the house and clean the restrooms and all that stuff. Well, that doesn't make them clerical anymore. They're working in the back room. And when you talk about the governing class code, they're no longer clerical. They are going to be rated a hundred percent, all of their payroll in the back of the house. And if you've got a highly paid bookkeeper, that's a lot of payroll going in the back of the house and a much higher rated class code. Yeah. Yeah. I've had it happen one time before too. I've told this story a couple of times where I rode a large manufacturing uh, facility that was all under roof. It was several hundred thousand square feet and it was thermoforming and extruding of plastics to make the clamshell containers for produce but they also had a label printing operation that was part of that. And so the label printing people were all, that's all they did. They didn't go into any other portion of the facility or whatever else. They were under the same roof. However, the area was fenced off with a gate and they were completely separated from everybody else. And they had a set of clients where if they didn't manufacture the size of container that that client needed, they would still print the labels and sell them to the client. So they were not just printing as part of the manufacturing process. They were also a standalone printer that had sales to third parties just for their labels. And when the workers comp carrier came in, they originally wrote the policy with no concerns. And then it audit, they came back and they wanted to put everybody that was in the print shop into the governing code for extrusion because that was the more expensive code. And so I didn't agree with it because A, and we'll talk about this when we get into the audit uh, session next, I brought their auditor in on the front end. I'm a huge proponent of if you have any question at all about what something is classified as, or how, you know, or you, whether you think it's right, wrong, or it could be misconstrued, you are far better served talking to your carrier. And if it's in a big enough account, and this one was asking them if they wouldn't mind having their auditor come out as part of the initial meeting, because before we actually bind coverage with a carrier on a good sized account, we bring the underwriter, we bring the audit, the, an audit person, we bring their loss control and we bring claims and we all sit in the conference room and, and have a conversation and, and onboard the client that way. And everybody signed off on it and then it became a problem. And so we actually had, we had NCCI come out and do the audit because the carrier wasn't going to budge after they agreed to write the policy the right way. And this was six figures in additional premium that we had thought we addressed on the front end. NCCI came out and ruled the same. They said, nope, everything goes in the governing class code unless you make the print shop a separate LLC with its own payroll and run only those people through there. And then we will name, put them as a named insured on the policy along with or an additional named insured on the policy along with the, the main company. And we'll leave it the way that it is. And I'm thinking, okay, I get it. Not a big deal. It's like less than 500 bucks for us to do that. But why did we have to go through all of this <laughs> when you could have just told me that on the front end, right? Yeah, that's that's very frustrating because the, the difference between the story you just told and the story that I hear on a, a weekly basis, at least, is is all of the the legwork you did on the front end to make sure that everybody 
was on the same page because what happens? Well, that's because I did it the other way too many right. times, man. I well, finally learned my and, lesson. <laughs> and the challenge that we're in, and and we all are at least second generation in this business. So if you were to go back and talk to the older generations, and they will rant if given the opportunity about what a piss poor job this industry does in in training people today versus what they did. 20, 30, 40 years ago. And it starts with underwriting. Um, it, it doesn't happen by and large uh, today. It's you know a submission with a craptastic uh, description of operations. If the carrier decides they're okay with the premium, they're good to wait for the auditor to show up as a second stab at underwriting and decide if the way they wrote it is actually correct. And I apologize to any underwriters but not really that might be listening to this because I, I see it every day. And what's in, you know, the, the situation you're talking about, David is where when you, you talked earlier about classifications tend to get be pretty simple. What you're talking about gets into a really hairy corner of the classification system, which is when can you add an additional basic classification and I'll tell you from the description that you just gave me, it kind of sounds like all the hurdles were crossed, which is generally going to be that the business can survive uh, on its own if the principal business you know, went away. So if they were selling those labels to people other than the, the principal business, they have to be. Yeah. I, and I really thought that was like the differentiator, man. I thought, OK, well, A, I thought it was because we had it caged well, in. Right. Well, that's know, the second piece is it has to be. <laughs> physically separated in a way that protects it from the, the general risk of the, the principal business. And then, you know, if there's interchange of labor, you know, you have to keep the records about who works where. But several years ago, I got in a very similar argument with the Indiana Bureau because they had come out and done an inspection just like NCCI did. And I must have written thousands of words arguing why, I was right. And I, I was right. They just said I wasn't. Um, and, and ultimately we lost, but the solution they presented to you is the magic bullet because we separately cl classify every legal entity in a state, but there has to be enough money in it. You know, you say it's 500 bucks to set it up, but it's a separate tax return. It's a separate, you know, payroll system. You know, and there's, there's a meaningful burden on the employer to do that sort of thing. But if you're talking about six figures, it becomes pretty easily justifiable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Todd, what's your, I mean, what's your story? What's the worst class code deal you've ever had to deal with? You know, what's, what's interesting about this scenario is I think it, it depends upon the carrier. We took over an account one time that had all of that. They had engineers in the back that were programming machines remotely. Um, and it was kind of a small startup type business. So they're working out of a small type garage facility. They've got all their engineers in the back, and then they've got their production department on the front end, separated by walls. And one company wanted to dump them all under the manufacturing class code. And we had another carrier come in and say, we did the pre-inspection, much like what you talked about, David. And we, we took pictures. We didn't, have, we didn't actually have anybody come out on site. It wasn't that size of an account. But we just took pictures of the separate work areas, did a video, showed them. And the carrier at that point agreed, yes, we believe there's a separation. They've got the walls up. It's an entirely separate workspace. And they rated them separately. 
So I don't know. I think some of it, sometimes you may just need to find a different carrier that's willing to be more agreeable than some of the other people. Yeah. There, I mean, there's certainly we live in a great industry. That's why we have debits and credits and, you know, different rating methodologies on how we price an account based upon the type of work that they do. Yeah. There's certainly room for reasonable disagreement, especially when you get into that specific area. And I, I know we're right up against our time, but I want to yeah. tell you this story because I just found out it resolved itself yesterday and it's something I've been working on for over two years. Um, and I think it illustrates the importance of not only you, the agent, understanding how a business is classified, but also your client understanding how they're classified and how important it is. You know, we are all big fans. All of us here are big fans of you know, keeping things in plain English for our clients. Like we, right. We, we all agree that we want to speak our client's language as much as possible, not spit a whole bunch of insurance words at them. But in this case, the client not understanding how the classifications worked, uh, bit them in the, in the rear end for an awful lot of money. And so in this case, it's a property management company that employs maintenance staff, as you know, this is a, a property management company that uh, did a lot of residential uh, residential properties that they directly manage and maintain. So they have a maintenance staff. They have the same agent for over two decades, and that maintenance staff was always classified in the carpentry, the fifty six forty five class code, outside of the ninety fifteen property management code. And when you read the property management code, it says, uh, with some caveats that aren't relevant in this situation, that employees doing ordinary maintenance and repair of the properties are included in 9015. Well, the job title for these maintenance people was carpenter. You know, this was some out of a book job title. Um, and so, Literally for 20 years, they had these people in carpentry. And a few years ago, another agent came in and said, well, what are these people actually doing? And what they're doing is ordinary maintenance and repair. Like a kid kicks a hole in the drywall, they come in and fix a hole in the drywall. You know, door gets knocked off the hinges, they fix it. Um, they were not doing new construction. They were not knocking out walls and doing alterations. They were doing maintenance and, and repair of the managed properties. And so they went back to the insurance companies that were involved and they said, you know, hey, this is wrong. And over the course of several years, the, this is a company that never paid more than $150,000 in premium. And we were fighting about seven years where it was worth about $350,000 in additional premium. That was with adjusting the mod <clears throat> for what the mod would have been if the codes were, were correct. And it all came down to the fact that when the insured discussed this with the insurance company and with the auditors over the years, they always used the word carpenter instead of just calling these folks maintenance people. And I'm convinced if they had called the maintenance people from the jump, they would have gone in 9015 as they should have and all of this could have been avoided. But they didn't get that. Yeah, the whole advice. time you're explaining that, that's exactly what I'm thinking is why aren't these guys in 9015? Right, because because no one ever the, the agent that was on the account accepted that carpentry was correct. The, uh, the employer didn't know any better. And 
it, it didn't feel so, so outrageous. It had always been done that way through multiple generations of people taking care of the insurance internally for them. That was just how it was. So no one ever questioned it until a new agent came in the door and was like, whoa, you know, this, this isn't the way it should be. You're paying way more than is reasonable. I just looked up the rate in Iowa. I mean, once again, it goes back to being an expert, reading the scopes manual, finding out what the job duties are. But the rate in Iowa, it's a third, a third for property management mm -hmm. versus carpenter. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot oh, yeah, of absolutely. money. A lot of money. But we get into this group think, right? The underwriter says, well, if that's how the previous agent coded it, that's how we want to code it. And it takes, you really got to bang that drum for a long time and provide the the written documentation and the pictures and the, the, the job duties to get someone to come off of what's been done before to prove to them that what's been done has been incorrect. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be an easy feat. Sometimes you really got to push. Well, look at the end of the day, this is my advice as we wrap this episode up, spend 99 bucks and go buy the fricking scopes manual from NCCI. And every time you have a class code, read it like that's what I did. Right. And I even in, in some cases, if I feel like, there's going to be a point of contention with the client or the prospect. I print it out and take it to the meeting with me and show them exactly what it is. And I've even done it where I won't tell them which code I'm reading the scopes for. I'll ask them, is this an accurate description of what you're doing? And it's the one I think they should be in, not the one that they're in. So there's a lot of things that, you know, that's the one. There are very few things that I'm really like actually happy that I spend money on. That's one of them, man. That scopes manual for $99 a year has made my life so much easier since money. I started buying yeah, it. Yeah, I would, um, more specifically, more than just the scopes, I would go out of pocket for the mini e-library from NCCI, which I think, Ooh, I, so I, I think, let me just, because I know exactly where to look on their website. So this is, it's a bundle that gets you the basic manual, the experience rating plan manual, the scopes manual, uh, it also gets you the forms manual and the circulars, which are not quite as useful for. Um, it's a lot of manuals. Yeah, but the big <laughs> thing is the basic manual, the experience rating plan, and the scopes, and that's 150 a year for all three. Oh wow! If you only need that's one cheap. state, that's a better deal. You only need one state. If you work in multiple states, it's like an extra 50 bucks per state, and then if you want the whole country, it's 800 bucks. The other resource, since we're talking about this that I recommend every agent that has accounts outside of their home state is the analysis of workers' compensation laws, which is published by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Uh, you can get that at publications.uschamber.com. They're charging like 200 bucks for it now. We get the digital edition. It's a 140-page book that breaks down in tables every state, U.S. territory and possession, and Canada, who has to buy comp, who doesn't have to buy comp, what you get paid when you get hurt, whether or not you can choose the the doctor. Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff and it's outside of the rules of the bureaus. It's actually what's in the state statute. And if you've ever tried to read a state statute and sort some of these questions out, it's the book is dramatically easier. Uh, and like I said, if you have accounts in multiple states, you cannot make the mistake of assuming everything's the same everywhere because that that'll bite you for sure good advice sage Very advice good. as always and listen people that advice doesn't end with this podcast because one 
We're getting ready to do another episode and give you way more Kevin Ring. But if that's not enough, you can also join the Institute of Work Comp Professionals and learn from this guy all the time. Now, listen, I have a lot of friends that have that CWCA in, uh, designation. I almost said endorsement. Good grief. <laughs> And every one of them tells me the same thing. The coursework itself is fantastic. But when you're out there and you run into one of those deals like some of the ones we just talked about and you need a resource that you can pick up the phone and call, this guy's like an encyclopedia with a beard. Like he knows – the reason he knows about those manuals is, A, he either contributed to the authorship of them or he has read them front, back, left, right, top to bottom and knows them in and out. So I would highly recommend that you guys reach out to Kevin and Preston at the Institute of Work Comp Professionals if you want to take your game to a completely different level. I can help you with selling it, but you got to know what you're doing in order to do that. And they have some pretty cool sales tactics as well. So they don't pay me for telling you to do that. I do not get any compensation whatsoever. I can just tell you, if I knew Kevin Ring 20 years ago, I wouldn't have a podcast or an agency. I'd be worried about the calluses on my hands from reeling up so many massive grouper in the keys. (laughs) With that being said, we are out. Everybody have a great weekend and we'll catch you next time. See ya. been listening to power producers shop talk you can follow us at the power producers podcast on facebook and instagram and if you want to take your game to the next level check out our commercial insurance training course at killingcommercial.com or visit amazon to pick up a copy of our international best-selling book the extra two minutes